the archaeologists could probably learn about something about from how other people see the world, but also I think that it's probably useful for the people in your position to engage with archaeological evidence and information and chronological information, and it might help underpin what you're doing as well. Hello and welcome to Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 53. I'm Graham Gardner. And in this episode, I spend some time with Glasgow University archaeologist Dr Kenny Brophy, also known as the Urban Prehistorian. You will be familiar with Kenny from earlier podcast episodes numbers 47 and 48, I think. Kenny had contacted me as he is doing some research into lays in relation to archaeological landscapes, and he said he was having trouble finding many books on the subject in the university library. Perhaps not surprisingly, you might think. So anyway, I invited him to come round and have a look at my own library, and over a couple of cups of coffee, we had a great chat about uh, lays, curses, monuments, Harry Bell's Glasgow Network of Aligned Sites, the Cockney Stone, and dowsing, and a lot of other things. So let's just jump straight in. I started by asking Kenny, why this sudden interest in lays? So I'm, I'm, inter- I'm interested in ley line, or lays, ley, ley lines, lays. Lays is uh, the lays, I know term. that you prefer that, so... <laughs> um, because uh, I'm interested in it as a way of um, as a way of engaging with prehistoric landscapes, uh, so uh, because I think that it's actually a it's an it's an interesting mindset that, that that sees this kind of these these kind of prehistoric arrangements in the landscape that still somehow survive today, um, and so I'm always interested in the ways that people engage with prehistory and landscapes, and actually. Rather than dismiss it as archaeologists usually do, you know, and just say this is all rubbish and this is stupid, maybe we should actually seriously consider there's a lot of people out there whose only engagement with prehistory is through lay hunting or through their understanding of lays. And there seems to me a big gap between the the literature and the, the communities that, that are involved in both like prehistoric archaeology and, and, and working with lays. Well, so. yeah, it's interesting how it started as a fairly. Uh straightforward, almost academic mm-hmm. um, approach, just looking for these trackways in the landscape. And you know, then the 70s came along and it all, all uh, swerved right into the New Age side of things. Yeah. But you know, it still refuses to go away. So, And I think, I think that, the, that this um, gap between archaeologists and lay hunters um, has been there right from the start as well. Because it's interesting how Watkins was, Alfred Watkins was um, kind of, poo-pooed by some of his colleagues and his, his historical or his heritage society and um, there's all this stuff about OGS Crawford and how Crawford refused to run an advert for um, the old straight track in antiquity and refused to even acknowledge that the book existed despite the fact that in the 1920s and 30s there was a really big fashion yeah. for for lays and there was a sort of certain kind of middle class clientele who loved that kind of stuff and were out in the countryside and looking for these connections and were visiting archaeological sites and trying to understand the landscape and it was just being it was just ignored by the archaeological establishment and actually that's that's worse than that's worse than kind of criticizing someone is ignoring them really and that's and I think that's probably set the tone for the debate in the following decades really well the same thing happened with Tom Yes. Yeah, exactly. He was ignored completely, mm-hmm. uh, and still is largely, I think. Um, yeah, I think the views of uh, archaeologists, yeah, 
present company accepted. Um, <laughs> we're very restricted in the past. Like people like Pickett just poo pooed mm. anything that wasn't yeah. in his yeah. remix. You know. Yeah. yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. And I, if you look at the the way that. The, the the way that things have developed and and the, the, arche, the archaeologists is it became it became lays became something almost like a, a kind of a, a, a an easy subject to kind of kick around as being an example of the kind of worst of fringe archaeology. So if you look at the literature in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties when there was a lot of uh, big debates in archaeology about the nature of archaeology as a discipline, how we understand the past, these kind of um, Fringe approaches, as they were as they were called in the literature, were often regarded as being like a, a testing point for when an archaeologist had gone off the rails. So Colin Renfrew, who's like a f- famous archaeologist, Lord Renfrew as he is now, he had this. He set this test in the, 90, in the early nineteen nineties where he said that theoretical young archaeologists who were coming through at the time, who were all about you know archaeology is subjective and it's all about it's all about interpretation and everyone's opinions are valid and interesting. Renfrew said to them, you know, um, you, you, if you can't disprove um, empirically the existence of ley lines, then you're, you're just as bad as the ley hunters, you know, you're not a proper archaeologist. And that was the, that he actually set that challenge to, mm. to, to younger academics, you know, if you can't prove ley lines are wrong, then there's something badly wrong with the way you see the world, because of course there is such a ridiculous anti-scientific idea that these such things existed. And yet there is pretty good evidence in a lot of the Watkins lays that there is, you know, some sort of alignment stuff going on. Mm, yeah, the evidence I've read has been from archaeologists, that's the thing, because I come from a disciplinary perspective where everything I read has trained me to tell me there are no, there's no such thing, mm-hmm. and, there's, um, and it, it's, it's, it's wrong-headed and it doesn't make any sense. So that's, that's the disciplinary perspective I come, I come from, so I still find it difficult to... to kind of even say, oh, well, maybe, maybe is there something in it? I don't know, and, and actually I don't really know because I haven't, I haven't looked at Watkins' details, lines in enough detail, and ultimately, um, the archaeological evidence doesn't really quite stack up in terms of things like the chronology and all sorts of things. But at the same time, what what Watkins did was a really outstanding piece of work. You know, it's a, it's a really creative and an interesting way of engaging with landscape. He was a great photographer, and if you look now, his work's been reevaluated by people like Robert McFarlane, who see it as kind of as a kind of a as a landscape history exercise. Yeah. So I mean to me to me the, the, the point is not whether lays exist or not or whether the whether or whether we can prove them or not because that the, the the issue I think is more about um that it's I'm interested in that that as a way of, of viewing the world. And in the same way as being an archaeologist is a particular way of viewing the landscape and the world, you know, so we have our we have our own um, terminology, our own methodologies our own arcane rules and regulations and ways of doing things that don't make sense to outsiders necessarily. So it's another way of another way of viewing the world. Yeah. yeah. It's it's just a case of it's 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 sometimes it's difficult to sometimes difficult to kinda of necessarily weigh up and balance whether one approach is better or, or more correct than the other, depending on your your kind of framework frame of reference, I suppose. Well I think anything that gets people outside engaging with the landscape in some form has got to be good, you know. Because yeah. you never know what's going to uh, come out of that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely true, and I think that um, anything that, that gets people working with maps, doing f- going out and f- doing field work, thinking about the the way that the the land is organised, and trying to think about how we can see ancient patterns in the landscape and the modern landscape. I think that's all that's all really interesting, and that's essentially that's what archaeologists do. But we just have a veneer of it being a a scientific 
um, a scientific empirical objective way of doing that, um, mm-hmm. which in fact isn't really anyway. I mean, that's all just that's a kind of a, a bit of a sham, really. It's not. It's nothing like that. It's, it's again. It's much more about creating the past in our own image in the ways that we imagine it to have been. It's full of all sorts of assumptions, um, which are which may or may not be correct. Who knows? And it's prehistory, so we can't prove any of this stuff anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's. I think that there's there's it's the the mindset really is really interesting, um, and I, go, I guess I'm I'm yet to be persuaded that there that lays are, are are really a thing. But at the, at the same time, I'm also interested in, and you can maybe say a bit about this. The interest the about the difference between the Watkins way of of lay hunting, where he was very much, and I think also uh, Ludovic Mann and Harry Bell as well, who I'm interested in. Both were interested in things being connected in the landscape as being routeways. And I think that you see it as as being something different from that, and not just not just routes that people move, but actually lines of energy or that, that connect things together. Yeah, the dowsing view has moved on and um, matured, I guess. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a big disconnect uh, back in the eighties. Um, Paul Devereux, who you know, was running the Lay Hunters um, mm-hmm. Society at the time, uh, really felt that things were getting too fringe and too uh, unscientific. Uh-huh. You know, people are talking about like um, UFO pathways and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. which is too much woo uh, gathering yeah. around the whole uh, uh, lay thing. Um, and dowsing kind of got a bad press with that as well. The book that got me into dowsing was Tom Graves' book Needles of Stone, and uh, I know he and Paul Devereux had a big falling out over this, mm-hmm. and ultimately Tom went off to Australia for twenty years, yeah. came back a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was there was this big disconnect between the dowsing community and um, Paul trying to keep a scientific face on things, and he went down the road of uh, spirit paths, and then he got into his um, archaeoacoustics field and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was you know doing the dragon project at the Rollright Stones all this time mm-hmm. for no money. Uh, so dowsing uh, really start, started getting into lays, I guess, and the modern picture I would say was through Sigel Wonnegren. Uh, who was one of my teachers, who was an American. And in America, they still call them ley lines, these things that they are dowsing, and mm-hmm. uh, they find these energy lines that are dowsable, yeah. which may or may not coincide with a visual alignment. And uh, John Michel uh, told Sig, who was calling these mm-hmm. things he was finding lays, uh, John Michel said, don't call them lays, because they might not be the same as the Watkins lays. Mm-hmm. So he suggested calling them energy lays. Yeah. Okay. So that's why we try and keep the distinction I mean, at one point, Sig uh, had proposed three classifications. There was like um, T-lays, which were Watkins trackways, mm-hmm. yeah. um, A-lays, which were yeah. astronomical alignments, and mm-hmm. E-lays, which were the energy lays that those are seem mm-hmm. to find. So that's the distinction now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so an energy lay may or may not coincide with a, a visual alignment. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, that's, and that's quite familiar, um, that, that process of, um, of disputes and of a... And of classifying things in those ways. I mean, that that reminds me, for instance, in the in, in the nineteen seventies, there was attempts to try and think about um, the way that ar- the archaeological record was created. So there was there was this idea of um, C transforms and N transforms, which were cultural transformations and natural transformations. So you know, did did a um, did the uh, uh, an eagle end up in Isbest on the tomb of the eagles because it was placed there by humans? A cultural mm. Mm. act, or did it? Or did an eagle fly in and die inside the tomb? A natural act. <clears throat> so is this N and C trend? So that that terminology it reminds me very much of what you're saying there about this, you know, the E's and, and T lays and things yeah. like that. 
and it's so so they so they don't actually um, so these are not are these mutually compatible networks? Uh, yes, I mean very often they do overlap. Uh, you'll find uh, an energy lay running along a visual lay. Uh, it depends. I mean, those are, you know, of course, it's a very subjective art, and mm-hmm. we really haven't got the language to describe everything uh-huh. in detail. Uh, so there are some lays, uh, for example, the classic uh, one, the Stonehenge Old Serum Salisbury Cathedral one, that was Norman Lockyer found. Uh-huh. Um, Sig, I know, says he can't douse that because it's just a visual lay. Yeah. He also talks about another one going through Avebury that runs up the avenue, and there is a dead clear sight line through the spire of Avebury Church between two stones, but that lay is only like two inches wide. Mm. You have been exactly the right spot to see it. I certainly find I can douse these lays, mm. and I can douse a lot of the Harry Bell lays, uh, but they might just douse as a couple of inches wide, mm-hmm. whereas an energy lay is usually you know, uh, over a metre. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things that's really interesting to me about reading about lays, and I, th- I think I've been reading along the kind of the, the Watkins Devereux school, that's what I've been looking at mm. really, uh, is the way that there is act, there's, there's an engagement with archaeological material in an interesting way. So I um, also uh, recently re- read uh, Paul Screeton's Quicksilver Heritage. Mm. Uh, um, and there's, 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 there's the, the, the Devereux and Pennock book as well, they've got whole chapters that are about archaeological sites and they're about, they're about prehistory. Um, and this, the Screeton book is in particular has got is it plays really fast and loose with what we know about about the Neolithic and Bronze Age, uh, and it's 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 not. I don't think it's a particularly well informed piece of writing, but it's also from the seventies. The seventies, so um, I mean, I think post the last thing I read by Paul Screeton was about the Hexham Heads, which is a whole different story. Right. Um, it started but, off really well that book. I think it kind yes. of lost it towards the end of it. Yes. Yeah. And I think that I think there's the kind of I think that maybe that's just there's, there's as it goes on to try and find explain the lays and, and you know, what it's all about and yeah. But but it's I'm interested that you know one thing that really interests me, for instance, is um, is in the Devereux and Pennock book. There's a whole chapter on Cursus monuments, which are a subject close to my heart because you're special there, yeah, yeah. yes, uh, <laughs> and which are clear the most obviously prehistoric uh, linear features. Um, and so there's a, there's a really detailed discussion of about twenty five Cursus monuments. Thank you, uh, and. The and the and then using those as a basis for trying to work out are these lays or are they not and um, so you, using for instance crop mark evidence which is for which is sites that, that Watkins wouldn't have known about for instance because crop marks were in the infancy in the nineteen twenties so there's a there's an attempt to try and engage with the archaeological material to discuss cursus monuments with no which almost no one else ever discusses you know and, and even at that time it was still a, a it's still arcane even now but it was definitely was when that book came out. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that that's something as an archaeologist I can get to grips with because I can then say, right, okay, how has that evidence been used by the by the lay the lay hunting community? Um, how, is, is, does this make sense? You know, and then so I can start to I can start to get my use my frame of reference to start to either say, oh, that that's interesting, or that that you know that's that doesn't make any sense. But we know that some cursus monuments were connecting up places of significance. Yeah, but whether those are actually um, routeways as Watkins would see it, or whether there's something else that was being sensed by people in prehistory, we don't really know. But um, I think in that book it actually says lay, curses monuments were ley lines, you know, which is a which is a, an interesting statement, which is which is testable, and I think is something that would be interesting to go back and look at that again. Well, it depends how many sites are connecting, I suppose. Yes, well, the, a lot of them are not are not many. Yeah, I don't think they would have met Watkins' test. Yeah, 
I mean, there is uh, um, uh, Tom Scott who has that. There's a website that you can like connect any three oh, points, yes, oh, yes, going oh, through yeah. your house and get a ley line. Yes. Um, but I think in the Screeson book, he has yeah. a section in the back. Is there an appendix with a mathematical equation? I think so yeah, yes, something like, like seven sites. I think the probability of being random was like mm-hmm. so minute. Yes, yeah. but then Dave, Williamson and Bellamy disputed that in their in their statistical analysis because they 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 said that um, actually they they did a I can't remember how they did it, but they had all this this kind of model modelled of things they'd looked at and they'd worked out that actually even alignments of seven or eight points are not are not uncommon depending on the criteria that are used. Right, um, but. For every account, you well, that's 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 one account. For other accounts, we'll look and say no, because I think Watkins tried to statistically prove that this can't be random. Yeah, but it kind of, I think it kind of depends what points you're you're joining. Yeah, you know, because yeah. one of the things that Williamson and Bellamy say in their book is that uh, there's a there's a reliance, for instance, on um, churches, and Harry Bell does this as well. There's this idea that well, there's a church there, so this may have been a pagan site once as well. So yeah, and, and actually. The evidence is quite is quite limited archaeologically. That this is the, that's the case that church, churches are on pagan or earlier sites. No, but really? well, yes, I think there's not there's yeah there's not a lot of examples out there that, are, that have been demonstrated archaeologically. There are some, yeah. But on the other hand, you could also you could also argue, and you're you're about to counter argue, I think. But you could also say, <laughs> well, whoever excavates under a church, you know, so if there was a if there was a kind of a mound or a standing stone that was then replaced by a church um, a thousand years ago. Would we necessarily ever know that? So you know, so you can argue it both ways. But I don't. I, there's not. There's not hundreds of examples of post-Reformation churches, um, or, or ch- that are being built on sites that are thousands of years old. Uh, certainly not post-Reformation. No, pre-Reformation, yeah. maybe. Yeah. But yeah, uh, well, like Salisbury Cathedral, they found mm-hmm. a, um, a standing stone buried under that. I thought under the. Well, I could do a blog post on that then. Hmm? It's urban prehistory. That's a I could do a blog post on that. Yeah, yeah there are some examples. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Knowlton Rings is a yeah. church inside a henge. Uh, Rudston, mm-hmm. Rudston Monolith. Yeah, Rudston, Rudston's good one as well. Yeah, so Governor Old Parish Church. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. That's, oh, what about all, examples. The, the, the other, all the other ones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that one of the, um, when I was looking at um, talking about uh, Govan. When I was looking at um, Harry Bell's line that went from Camp Hill or Queens Park mm-hmm. to um, Cochno, and I and I and I drew and I drew a line on the map, and I'm not quite sure how wide the lines are, are really meant to be because obviously a pencil line on the map is quite wide anyway. But in reality, but I was sure that the line actually went through the Water Row Car Park, which is the site of the Doomsday Hill. Hill. Yeah. Whereas Harry Bell said it was the it was Governor Old Parish he said it was going through, but actually to me it looked as if the, the line actually went through Doomster, where Doomster. I think when I did it in Google Earth, it went through the church. Uh, I just I, I used a map and a ruler, but um, yeah, uh, depends how questionable uh, how, how accurate you think Google Earth is. I guess I don't know. I think it's, I've, I've no idea. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but it was uh, it should be accurate, but yeah. yeah, but I think it depends how broad these lines yeah. are. Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, I probably got. I, I still have my old Glasgow OS map, the you know one in fifty thousand. But uh, I should have a look at that because I've got the lines drawn on that. Yeah, uh, did you, did but that's a good question about how wide are the lines? You know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some of these like the. We said some are narrow. Yeah. 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 Um, you know how wide is a lay? I mean, some of these long distance ones, like looking mm-hmm. at the the Michael line, which is that well known one runs across southern England. Um, some of the sites that are supposedly on that are like mm-hmm. you know a kilometre or so off the centre line, mm-hmm. so it's more of a geomantic corridor, really. So mm. you know, how but, do you define it? But that's got that's got a parallel with Cursus monuments because that archaeologists mm. quite glibly will say, "Oh, a Cursus monument is a processional routeway," 
Mm-hmm. But then you look, for instance, at the Dorset Cursus, which is a, which is 130 meters wide, <clears throat> which is you know wider than the length of a football pitch. Yeah. So how how do you, how is that a processional routeway really when you think about it? how does it, and, and Roy, Roy Loveday who's also written about Curses Monuments has made this point as well that if you've got a, a routeway that's the, the width of a, a double motorway um, where do you act, where are you controlling people walking here you know they're actually yeah. walking along a massive corridor you know if you walk along Stonehenge Greater Curses you can meander all over the place you know there's nothing about the architecture that really controls you walking from one end to the other Yeah. so I guess the, the idea of a, a corridor is something that works quite well in that respect. Yeah. I mean, we could get into um, some of the more esoteric dowsing theories that, you know, these the banks of the curses are built to contain the energy within. Really? Like, hedges are built to contain the energy within. So, you know, certainly there are some uh, dowsing manifestations of that. Mm. Um, the best research I've seen on that was a book called Seed of Knowledge, Store of Plenty, mm. where they actually did some uh, magnetometer surveys over hinges, and they were finding that, you know, there was this magnetic anomaly uh, within the hinge. So, the, the, actually, again, there's a an interesting uh, overlap in the way that archaeological archaeology has been going recently. Because the um, since there was a paper published in the mid 1990s by a guy called Warner, um, in looking at um, Iron, Iron Age enclosures in Ireland, and he argued, and they they've got um, as with hinges, they've got the bank on the on the inside and the, the bank on the outside and the ditch on the inside, which is the the inversion that hinges have as well. And he argued that this was because they were they were containing things inside mm-hmm. the hinge, and this then inside the Iron Age enclosures. And this idea has become wholesale transplanted to the interpretation of hinges in Britain, uh, and there's now this idea that they were they were containing they were they were space places that had to be contained in some way that they were protecting the outside world from something inside the hinge as opposed to enclosing the hinge from the outside world. Yeah. So the because I mean the idea is the ditch is the defensive element I suppose it's in the inside which is quite simplistic but that's become quite a popular argument. So this idea that the hinge is containing something which is dangerous I don't know I mean would, is when you're talking about like I know you're saying this is esoteric but if you're talking about like curses monuments or hinges are containing energy is this a dangerous thing or is it just something that has to or be it's just Or it's just channeling the energy. It's just channels. Uh, we could get into like for example um uh, this is largely my theory on lays. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of dowsing going on just now with these long-distance lays where you're finding male and female serpent lines either side of it that kind of snake around, mm-hmm. you know, like a caduceus. What's a serpent line? A, well, a serpent line is what you would call a meandering lay, not a straight lay. Okay, right. Right, just mm-hmm. a meandering earth energy line. So the Michael line has this that's called the Michael and Mary currents. And these are quite well known. Mm. Um, other ones have been doused across Europe, running through St. Michael's Mount, Mont Saint-Michel, other Michael sites, mm. called the um, Apollo line. And one of the most recent ones is the Berlinus line, which runs from the Isle of Wight right up through Durness on the north coast. And again, you have these male and female energy lines. And you know the male currents tend to favour um, male saints, uh, churches, mm-hmm. high points in the landscape, standing stones, and so on. The female ones tend to f- uh, favour low points in the landscape, you know, moats, holy wells, mm-hmm. and uh, churches dedicated to female saints. So, you know, and, you know, dowsers will say they do feel quite different. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the current theory. Um, and I think that these uh, are like the what you call the rainbow serpent in Australian Aboriginal terms. Mm-hmm. It's like the vibration of the energy, if you like. And then if the if the lay isn't that strong, then they're contained within the lay. Mm. But in these long distance ones, which are usually great circles around yeah. the globe, uh-huh. they're actually quite wide and go out to you know twenty miles or so aside. Mm. So, 
That's the current thinking. Okay, right. That's interesting. So what? So what is the? So what is the chronology of this? Because the Watkins it sees them as being a Neolithic phenomenon. I think is that still the current yeah. understanding? Um, yeah. Um, so so the, these the layers you're talking about um, are the what? What do you see as being the? Well, maybe they don't see having an origin. Maybe they've always been here. But when do you see people having an understanding of them existing? Well, I think a lot of these they they. Mm, they tie up to this theory of there being a, a sort of energetic world grid, <coughs> um, which I don't know if you've tuned into that at all. Is a professor of William Becker and Beth Higgins in Philadelphia came up mm, with that idea. I think I've read about it. Somewhere. Yeah, there's a, there's a Google Earth uh, download you can get. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called the Universal Vector Grid, where they, they overlaid all the Platonic solids and a couple of other more complex Archimedean solids, mm. and certain ancient sites seem to fall on these grid lines. And the uh, research I've done um, shows that the three, the Apollo, the Michael and the Berlinus lines, have a relatively close correspondence with the grid over the UK, but it's like displaced about 10 degrees. Mm-hmm. So so whether the grid was there, whether there is some validity to this, mm-hmm. maybe it dictates the way the, the Earth forms, uh, where hills form and stuff. Mm. No, no, there seems <clears throat> to be some validity to it, some correspondence. So you, you kind of... Some, you're saying something could, is all, or it originates in geological time, I suppose, in, Possibly, terms, yeah. in terms of our scientific understanding. Yeah. Of Certainly the Michael line, <clears throat> uh, the alignment goes through numerous high points like Glastonbury Tor, Butterbridge Mump, Brent Tor, you know, mm. um, as well as the major sites like Avebury and Stonehenge. So, you know, there does seem to be some mm. correspondence with the geology. Yeah. So the... Um, I, I think you... I don't know if you might be interviewing me or interviewing you, but this is, this is interesting. So if the... So you, the, you've, you've mentioned quite a few, a few kind of prehistoric sites there, so but but on, in that kind of scheme, therefore, if these are not routeways, because the routeways, then people must have created them and then marked them in different ways in the Watkins logic mm-hmm. and the Neolithic. Whereas what you're talking about is something that people discovered and latched onto, and then started to mark points on those routeways with certain yeah certain constructions, which is a different way of very different way of looking at it. It's, the, yeah, it's chicken or egg, which yes, first. Yeah, yeah, but that yeah. opens up the possibility. I think for you that that it doesn't have to be prehistoric stuff that's marking um, a lay because it could have been identified by someone in the Roman period or in the medieval period, depending on what their interests and skills were. So you don't you I don't think you're you're not chronologically constrained as Watkins was, where basically the explanation under the that traditional way, which is what um, Devereux and Pennick and Screeton were trying at pains to do, was to try and desperately demonstrate. That as many things as possible were Neolithic, in order yeah, to yeah. Ha- in order to validate the lines, because you needed to have four, five, six, seven Neolithic things mm. on the same alignment, which is why you get random boulders and trees and ponds and all sorts of things which probably aren't Neolithic, being attributed to maybe being Neolithic. Whereas you're you're not as constrained in that way. Yeah, well, we're kind of moving away from uh, the traditional lays here, I guess, getting yes. more into the wider field of um, geomancy. Um, you know, dowsers do seem to detect these same energies under ancient sites and cathedrals, anything uh, pre-Reformation, basically, yeah. uh, where you seem to have these energy lays originating, or at least crossing. You know, so certainly uh, a lot of the big uh, cathedrals have these power centres in them. So, you know, that's kind of a different picture. Mm. That's going from the pure energy lay viewpoint, mm. I guess. So you could argue then that, you know, people are aware of these energies and put the sites there. Yes. To contain the energy. Yes. That's a sort of geomantic picture. And there is the uh, the story of all the dragon-slaying saints. There's this metaphor of pinning the dragon 
And in geomantic terms, that is you, uh, by fixing these meandering serpent earth energy lines in place, mm. you know, you're stopping them moving through the landscape. You're stopping the, yeah. the vibration so much and channeling them mm. into straight lays. So you're, you're laying this sort of um, right, overlay so of a grid. Like. A, yeah. Imposing an artificial order on the yeah. landscape, which is, yeah. which, is, which, is, which is, again, um, is an argument that's made about curses monuments. Is that cursus monuments are imposing a natural, are imposing a human, cultural geometrical order on a on a on a chaotic landscape? Yeah, and that 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 kind of again parallels that. So again, there's a lot of kind of interesting overlaps. Yeah, so in a cursus monument, you would say that maybe the the outer banks are there to channel these serpent lines and contain yes. them yeah. into a straight corridor down to whatever the sacred site is at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what to what purpose? Of course, we really don't know. Uh, the the seed of knowledge sort of plenty book I mentioned they did some research with uh, germinating seeds uh-huh. in various ancient sites around the world and found that the seeds were more robust and had a stronger growth if they'd been left in the sites for a you know a few days or whatever mm-hmm. so mm. maybe it was a farming agricultural yeah. thing yeah yeah it's interesting but the good thing is that I can't prove you wrong you can't prove me wrong. Well, no, yeah, it's it's all part of the psychogeography of the site, yeah, really, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's why, and that's why you know, um, I would rather, I would rather learn from you about your your experiences and and how you see the the, the way that the land is organised, rather yeah. than just say as an archaeologist, you know, dismiss all of your ideas because actually your ideas are sometimes weirdly overlap in in unexpected ways. Yeah, without yeah. necessarily knowing each other's like body of literature. Yeah. You know, because there's things you're saying that remind me of, of lots of things that were written about curses monuments. Yeah. Um, and and so I think I think it's about so my view is it's about kind of a bit more communication between the. I don't even know if there is such a thing as a lay hunting community. It sounds like there's geomancers and lay hunters and and but the archaeologists could 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 probably learn about something about from how other people see the world. But also I think that it's probably useful for for people the people in your position to. Engage with archaeological evidence and information and cr- chronological information, and it might help underpin what you're doing as well. Oh, well, absolutely! Yeah, yeah, which is why it's good working in the Cochrane Stone because yeah, yeah. you know I've got I've got an, ar- an archaeological take on it, but you know your your perspective is valuable as well. So yeah, no, totally. It is you know it's all about sharing, like you say. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the lay hunter community is still sort of going. You know, there's the Society of Lay Hunters. Um, who produced this little photocopied newsletter two or three times a year. Yes. And then there's also, because the, they had a big, big splits a few years back, there's another one, um, the Lay Hunters, something or other, I mm. can't remember, that's run by Lawrence Main uh, mm. down in Wales, and he's quite a wacky character. Mm. You know, goes around wearing shorts and sandals, and he's got, you know, got the beard down to his knees kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, there's people in archaeology like that as well. Yes. <laughs> it's, funny how, yeah, it's funny how these... Um, these kind of little splits appear and you have different factions and things like that. It's a very, it's a very human thing. It just, yeah. you know, archaeology is absolutely splintered into different factions of people who believe a whole range of different approaches are the best way to understand the past. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just that we do it in a, a kind of an, in a highly organised professional academic and commercial discipline. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas, you know, the lay hunters have got, you know, it's more like a kind of a, a society level, a kind of bottom-up grassroots, grassroots movement, I suppose. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Yeah. And archaeology's got that element as well, you know, there's little societies all over the place too. Yeah. yeah. Hello, I'm Robin Heath, and I'm at the BSD Annual Conference, where I've given a lecture, and this is a podcast, Adventures in Dowsing, from 
the British Society of, of Dowsers, says my prompter. Marvellous. Well, as the summer dowsing season is fast approaching, here's a few dates for your diary. The BSD Spring Symposium is taking place in Worcester on the 28th and 29th of April. And uh, that weekend, sadly, I won't be attending the BSD event because I'm presenting a two-day workshop in Dumfries on House Healing Part 1. That's the Geopathic Stress module. On the 3rd and 6th of May, the International Feng Shui Conference is taking place in Lisbon and that I'm presenting a full-day workshop, Seven Steps to Sacred Space, and also a talk workshop on dowsing with sigils. On the 1st and 3rd of June, the Canadian Society of Dowsers National Conference takes place in Burlington, Ontario. On the 9th and 10th of June, I'm presenting the second house healing module in Dumfries. And on the 13th to 18th of June, the American Society of Dowsers Conference is taking place at the State University of New York in New Paltz, New York State. And the ASD West Coast Conference takes place in Santa Cruz on the 29th of June to the 3rd of July. And I'm also doing a full day workshop on sigils there. And my top topic is Lays the Straight Story. Very appropriate for this podcast, you might think. So you can find out details of where I'm appearing on my website at westerngeomancy.org and I'm sure you can work out where to find the other events on your own. But now, let's get back to my conversation with Kenny and we are talking about the Dragon Project, a valiant but uh, very underfunded attempt by Paul Devereux to gather some proper scientific research at the Eurorite Stones in Oxfordshire, which is a stone circle site also beloved by many dowsers. Well, but it's interesting, uh, a lot of the research that's been done, uh, you know, over the years, especially Paul Devereux's stuff with the roll rights, uh, you know, things like the, just anything they could throw at that, like the bat detectors and, you know, Geiger counters yeah. on the road. And the Dragon Project, <clears throat> the Dragon Project's fascinating and it's something I've struggled to find much information about. I mean, there's a few things online from Paul Devereux, yeah. um, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, it'd be really interesting to actually have some something for output from that project actually in an academic in yeah. an archaeological journal or in an archaeological place you know you know whether that be just an interview with, with Paul Devereux or to actually try and encapsulate the the results of and the, and the work that's been done because there's clearly been field work done in the project and yeah. there's been a lot of technology thrown at it you know in, in a kind of a, a children of the stones type way I think and from what I can gather which is which is Highly fashionable in archaeology just now, well, in kind of folk horror archaeology circles, which are, I'm, I'm that circle, I think, just now, but I think that, you know, it'd be really, it'd be interesting to have have these, you know, again, brought brought out into the light of day and actually give us a chance, archaeology chance to see what's going on and what it's all about, so. Yeah. But at the same time, presumably archaeologists have just poo-pooed and dismissed Paul Devereux, and maybe may that he's tried to he's tried to offer he's tried to offer an article on it to a journal like Antiquity, and maybe they've just said no way we're publishing this nonsense. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, there, I don't think there is any collated uh, material on the project at all. But yeah, is it still ongoing? Is it a kind of a? I don't think it's ever really finished. It's just um, like a kind of a rumbling on. I mean, he even had a he had a, what about um, two thousand pounds to spend on it and kept going yeah. for like twenty years. Well, that's, so, good. That's, a, that's a very efficient <laughs> use of money. <laughs> Yes, um, I know that feeling. Yeah, my favourite was the uh, the section of black painted drain pipe with the brown shrimp inside. Did you have that one? No. Uh, they put it up against one end, up against the st- one of the stones, and left it overnight. And when they came back in the morning, the shrimp were all up at that end. 
against the stone. Mm. So, yeah. But I mean, that's you know, completely off the wall concept to yeah. try. So, who yeah. came up with that idea? I think it's quite. I mean, the, the, yeah. I mean, to me, from my from my perspective, that's that's creative. That's almost like a, a, a piece of art, mm. you know. And there's there's an element to there's an element that there's a there's an element that we we all have our different engagements with stone circles and standing stones. And archaeologists have got a very technical and um, and a very kind of supposedly objective way of dealing with these monuments. Whereas there's a whole range of other ways to to work with standing stones. Yeah. And th- those those kind of things are fantastic. You know, they're really interesting, and they probably just mirror the kind of things that people have always done when they're trying to make sense of standing stones. And and if you stand, if you spend any time at a stone circle, you'll see dozens of different ways of engaging with the monument. Yeah. And archaeologists have got the most. Um, ironically, despite the fact that we should be the ones who are, who are best informed, have got the worst way of engaging with stone circles, because we, you know, we survey them, we record them, we document them in different ways, and a very it's very abstracted and and it's you know whereas we actually should be it should be much more of an intimate kind of engagement. Archaeologists, you know, prehistorians love standing stones, looking out. You know, whenever they're on site, they run up, they hug the stones and all that kind of stuff. But you would never know that from an archaeological account of a stone circle, no, because that is all that's all censored out of it. All you get is the kind of the we did this, the circle has got this diameter, we set up this piece of equipment, we did this, that, and the other. Um, the, that kind of engagement, which is a very human engagement of actually touching the stone, which is what everyone wants to do, you know, and and you know, and and and, and really being emotional about the experience is something that archaeologists never write about in a, in a kind of formal sense. Mm-hmm. So it's a, so as archaeologists, we've got. A, You've got a kind of peculiar way of dealing with these kind of sites. Do you have any uh, informal stories of uh, interesting experiences at a stone circle that people have had? Um, in interesting experiences. Well, uh, like for example, uh, you know, if I if I'm not in the right frame of mind when I approach a stone circle, sometimes mm. you you just walk in blindly and you're hit with a headache because yes. you haven't really engaged with the place before you enter. Oh, um, I have. I haven't personally. Um, I've certainly worked on sites where students have been uneasy mm-hmm. uh, about what we've been doing. So I was digging. Well, I wasn't digging. I was. I was. I was helping with an excavation in the nineties, uh, and there was work being done at the Twelve Apostles um, mm-hmm. Stone Circle near Dumfries, and one of the students um, refused to take part in the work. Um, there was a, a little excavation trench in some geophysics uh, because they had no, we hadn't hadn't done anything to prepare ourselves for doing the work yeah. so there hadn't been any kind of ceremony or any kind of in- formal engagement with what we were doing because all it was was a transactional archaeological relationship so she refused to take part in it because she felt as if it was the it was a, it was the wrong way to go about things and we were violating the circle by going into the middle and digging a hole in it essentially to see what was there yeah um, and I know that is interesting um, yeah I find the Twelve Apostles is a bit of a, an ambivalent site yeah, you know, some days you go there and it feels okay, and other times it feels quite dark and mm. not very welcoming. In, that's interesting because the Twelve Apostles mm. is aligned on by a Cursus monument. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. That's yes. interesting. Yeah, Hollywood mm. South Cursus, right. um, which I've actually I've actually um, published a long time ago a paper talking about the the Hollywood Cursus complex. There's two Cursus monuments there, mm. and is that and it's actually under and now now this is all now flooding back to me. It's actually underpinned by two alignments in the landscape. Right. Um, Hollywood South Cursus. Let me get this right. Hollywood South Cursus um, runs through. Uh, it lines um, through the Twelve Apostles, and there's a, I think there's a henge nearby as well, which has now been destroyed. And um, the Hollywood North Cursus aligns on another Cursus, which is a, a site called Galaberry, which is on the other side of the Neth, 
which is like mm-hmm. five kilometres away. Mm-hmm. And I, I got a map when I was a PhD student and I drew, and the curses books were on the map, and I, and I drew a line and they were on the same line. Right. So so actually, um, and I can't remember where the two lines meet. Yeah, I need to go back and look at the, the diagram that I, that I produced at the time. Uh, but so the, so the ho- Hollywood as a place is is got is it's got these two potentially li- long linear alignments, and, and the Hollywood South Cursus also points towards Criffle, which is the highest mountain in that, yeah. the, the south. This that bit of um, the whatever that bit of the, the southwest called. Uh, so I, so I maybe we're picking up on. Well, it's an interesting landscape kind of, down there. I've been yeah. doing a lot of work down there recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's Holy, Hollywood. I mean, it's got a, yeah. its name's quite interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Derry mentioned the Druid word. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, yes, yes. It's you can. A, it's you supposed can. to be a Druid site down there, wasn't it? Yeah. The Twelve Apostles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah. So, Druid or pagan or however you want to. Yeah, yeah. Depends what you mean by Druid, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it's an it's an interesting place and. And actually, unintentionally, I might have been laying out, marking out what I thought were lays mm-hmm. in the landscape. And actually, again, thinking back to what I was, because this is, we're going back 20 years ago now, what I was doing was I was trying to, when I was drawing these lines, I was looking to see what else is on the line, which is a very Watkins-y way of yeah. doing things. Yeah. And the more things that looked as if they might be on the line, the more convincing the line became to me um, within in, in my mindset at the time. Well, yeah, it, it, well, it does. You know, that's your yeah. confirmation bias, isn't it, kicking in? Yes, and all the other things I did, they weren't on the line, I just ignored. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I must, you know, every time I get a new OS map, I sit down and draw circles around all the ancient sites and see if you can get any lines going through them. So, yeah. 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 I'll, I'll, need to, I'll need to dig that out again. I'll send you that mm. stuff and see what you think, but it'll be mm. interesting to see your thought on that. And yeah. I might have to revisit that and see whether I actually was lay hunting. I was, when I really, when I think back now. But what I was, but I, what I was doing was I was arguing that they were um, processional routeways through the landscape. Yeah. yeah. So, but they, but so, so, but I don't know how they were supposed to cross the Nith though, because the Nith's quite wide down there. It's got a big, huge floodplain. Mm. So I'm not quite sure what that was about. But, mm. um, but you know, without even really trying to do, it, I was lay hunting as well, really. Yeah. And, but that 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 time when I was when I was doing my PhD, um, I would have completely poo-pooed the notion of such a concept and would have said that's ridiculous lay is not a lot of rubbish so you know I would never have engaged with it and never would have thought and yet actually unconsciously I was just doing the same the same thing yeah but I was dressing up in archaeological terms and putting it within a, a neolithic social context so to that that, that that all made sense to me it, all, it was all perfectly acceptable and I published it <laughs> so <laughs> Well, we do have that innate human need just to see patterns and everything. Yes, so, yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah. It's, it's, I guess it's hard being objective when you're trying to write an academic paper about it. <laughs> yes, yes, I know, but it's, in, it's interesting thinking back about yeah. Yeah, that whole process. Yeah, yeah. Have you engaged with uh, Burns' work at all down there? No, I haven't. No, is that the is that the Roman the training? The training well, or? yeah, but there's there's been a lot of archaeology in the last couple of years, and they were now thinking it was like the site of a massacre of the, the local tribe. Oh, right, no, the, I, didn't, I, didn't, I hadn't picked up, and I knew they were doing some stuff there. They found some uh, the massive stash of uh, slingstones on the top, uh, which mm-hmm. had a hole bored in them, but not all the way through, and and they found out doing some um, you know the, uh, reenactment research that they made mm-hmm. this like whistling noise in the air. Mm-hmm. So they had this theory that were sort of you know uh, instruments of terror. Yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, there's, there's something, something about that site. Uh, I think there's a deep mm. uh, historical trauma in the landscape there that needs needs some work. So, yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, that the, that the concept of trauma is quite interesting, and that kind of almost leads into ontology and about whether, you know, these kind of things actually linger. 
mm. um, through time or not. Um, thankfully, there's not a lot of prehistoric sites in Britain where we have um, evidence of traumatic instances. It's much more common in, in, in Germany and France and in the Neolithic in particular. There's lots of gruesome discoveries that have been made in the last two decades. But in Britain, there's not that many. I mean, it's like places like Maiden Castle, where the Romans apparently attacked the Iron Age fort there, and there's some person's got a ballista bolt through their spine. Mm. And um, there was, pr- in, in the Neolithic, there was probably a big attack on a, a, a Neolithic enclosure at Carnbray on Cornwall, which is excavated by Roger Mercer donkeys years ago, and he found hundreds and hundreds of arrowheads. And there was the idea was this has been a, a victim of a mass attack. But actually, there's not a lot of prehistoric trauma sites around. And, but yeah. maybe that burns work maybe one then it might be one yeah well there's also the um, uh, defeat of the Picts uh, which still hasn't been found is it? You know, that's another supposed trauma site up here what, is it, what battle was that is that ne- uh, Mons Gropius Mons Gropius oh, yes. yeah. well yeah so that maybe Mons Gropius could be found through a kind of a hauntological or dowsing approach yes because archaeologists yeah. have never have never managed well, to find yes. it so yeah maybe that's a project I should put my to-do list <laughs> yes if you could find that that would be much appreciated is that a, I don't know what it is but, yeah. yeah and uh, yeah. Uh, and is that tied in with the disappearance of the Ninth Legion I think it might be yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so again they may be still who knows who knows if they're still wandering out somewhere yeah yeah but mm. maybe, I don't know but um, yeah I, th- I think that I think there's lots of interesting synergies and yeah. overlaps you know and, and, and clearly we, we come from completely different Backgrounds, and yet we've we've got lots of points of reference here in this conversation, which is interesting itself. You know that you've been to the same sites as me, and yeah. you you know stuff about them, and I know stuff about them, and so that's in itself that's that's interesting. So it seems daft that we would then decide that we shouldn't work together in some way because we have these different disciplinary perspectives, as it were. Yeah. So where do you think your research is going with this? I think that in the moment it's probably going in in terms of trying to. I want to try and understand as much as I can, um, in particular what Harry Bell was doing and um, with around Glasgow, and he was he was very much of the walking school, and he he says that himself in his book that you know that yeah. old Alfred I think he calls him in, in the book in his book. Um, so I'm interested in trying to find out more about what he was doing and about what and to try and get behind the the book uh, behind um, Glasgow's sacred geometry. Uh, I do have a um, a guy I know who has um, Harry Bell's uh, photograph collection or his, his his slides or photos or whatever that he got after Harry died um, from the family. So I'm trying to I'm hoping to get access to those to get a sense of what's there. But what I don't know <clears throat> is are there is there other archival material, other notebooks? You know, presumably he's got he did he had field notes and sketches and all sorts of things and preliminary versions of his of his different. Um, Maps, yeah. So I'd quite like to look a bit more at his working methodology and how he developed. Because I think there's, I think there's actually a really nice story to be told about the work he did. Um, that's 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 not really. It's never. It's not really ever got much publicity because again, it was shunned by the archaeological establishment. Um, none none of his research was ever published in, for instance, the the Glasgow Archaeological Journal, which was an obvious place to put it. Um, his book was. Um, not self-published, but essentially it was quite a low-level kind of publication. That's, yeah. That I don't know what the, the print run would have been, but it's, it's it's rare and you can't. It's difficult, almost impossible to get now. Uh, so is is there a way that you know that just that the really the really interesting work that he did could become more prominently known? You know, whether it be through you know trying to just write up in some way his approach, talk to people that knew him, talk to his his family about it, and that kind of thing. So. 
I'd quite like to. So again, it's it's my my focus is on the is on the, is on the process, I suppose, and the way that and the the way that the that people engage with the the landscape and with the archaeology, and what the thought process is, mm-hmm. and um, and I and I guess that I'm less interested in trying to. I don't. I don't want. I mean, I could do an archaeological hatchet job. You know, I could. I could look at every point that Harry Bell has on his grid, on his aligned network of aligned sites, and I could. I could completely rip it apart with you know. Well, of course, how do we know this? How do we know that? There's no evidence of this. Why is there a Mesolithic flint scatter? You know, why are the Roman sites in it? You know, but I'm not interested in doing that because I don't think that serves any real purpose. But I'm more interested in celebrating what was you know clearly a, a, a really interesting guy. Yeah, and you know Glasgow Sacred Geometry is such a nicely written account of what he was doing in terms of his his, his amazement that he was finding this stuff and that no one had ever noticed before. Yeah, you know all that kind of stuff's really nice. So, so I'd much rather celebrate that and try and dig a bit more into what he was doing rather than to rather than to do a kind of analysis of what he was doing because it's it would be quite easy to pick holes and it be and be kind of mean about the whole thing. But I'm not interested in doing that really. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's because um, he, he went to um, evening classes in archaeology at the university. He did. He went. He did the certificate of um, field field archaeology. Would, um, would he have submitted any reports or articles for that that might be? In the he would have somewhere? submitted coursework for yeah. that, but I wouldn't imagine any of that still exists. I don't yeah. think his tutor would have been Lionel Masters, who was a quite a venerable figure in the Glasgow archaeology scene, um, who died a few years ago. So I'm not quite sure whether any of that stuff would exist or not anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, certainly. Well, um, Ian, the guy I know, has certainly got photographs of his, so he might also have other stuff. He just said he had material, so he might have boxes with notebooks and stuff in as well. So right. just needs to get him to answer his emails. Well, that'd be interesting to have a look at. Yeah, it would definitely. Yeah, it would be yeah. interesting. I think that it would be, and actually, be quite interesting um, to because there's obviously um, Mays, um, May Mills Thomas, the the mm. Devil's Plantation, which is a, an, a, an absolute celebration of yeah. of um, the stuff that Harry Bell did, and she's obviously visited these places, and she's did the Devil's Plantation blog and and so on. But it'd be quite interesting to it'd be quite interesting to look at the alignments from your perspective as well. You say you've also done field work as well and like yeah. ground truthing, I suppose, and looked at that and um, and maybe just and, and maybe approach it from a, a range of different perspectives. Yeah, so that would be yeah. quite a nice thing to do as well. Yeah. But yeah, so that's kind of that's where I see things going just now and I'll try and at the moment I'm just trying to get my head around the relative attitudes of the of the different communities in terms of and I'm, and I'm, and I think at the moment I'm really f- more focused on the more Watkins lay line of things and the way that so, and so I'm trying to I'm just I want to make sure I don't misrepresent those those arguments. Yeah. yeah. Um, as well so so partly that's why I wanted to to talk to you and to look at your library was to to make sure that there's, I'm not because the sources I'm looking at are, are quite old now, and I'm not sure whether they're absolute classics, and it doesn't matter. I mean, obviously, Watkins stuff is is classic, and is it doesn't matter that you know it's it's six, seven, eighty years old because the lays that he spotted, if you believe that the lays are real, then they're still there. Yeah, you know they might be more difficult to see because of urbanisation and so on. But yeah, um, and it's amazing that that book is still in print. Yes, it is. Well, I bought a copy um, a month ago, and it was like a Robert McFarlane introduction. Yeah, and um, it was a it was a nice shiny copy, but it had wonderful photographs in it throughout. And I've got um, I also got a copy of the Lee Hunter's Manual out of the University Library. Believe mm-hmm. it or not, well, it was just on the shelf, so yeah. I got it out and got it out in three months loan. <laughs> and it's a it's a wonderful book. It's a beautiful little book, you know. Yeah. And again, it's like a it it's, it really reminds me of. Um, of books that were published around that time and in the subsequent decades that were field archaeology guides, which were exactly the same thing. It was, you know, 
this is how you do archaeological field work, this is how you recognise um, a, a pillow mound, this is how you recognise a long barrow, this is how you recognise a fort, this is how you recognise this, that and the other, so a pillbox or whatever, so you've got all these, um, you've got, it's, it's like a field guide, so it's, a, it's, it's, exact, it's, just, it's just the same kind of thing, it's just a field guide, it's, you know, it's got photographs and drawings of things, this is what to look out for, don't be fooled by these things. So it's it's yeah. it's no different to the kind of archaeological publications that were coming out at the time. So it's <clears> a, it's interesting just to explore the, the synergies. And Adam Stout he wrote a book about um, called Creating Prehistories about ten years ago, which is a really nice book about the development of prehistoric archaeology in the twentieth century and the cultural context of that. And he has several chapters on Watkins and um, what he was doing and how archaeologists dealt with it, and and also the broader context that Watkins was working in between the wars and. The, the movement towards outdoors activities and outdoor leisure and um, the kind of the, the leisure middle class who had a bit more time in their hands and an interest in things and how that was essentially exactly the same people who were also into archaeology and yeah. into heritage and so people who would think nothing of visiting a stone circle might also be the kind of person who might get a map out and go and see if they can identify some lays so it's the same kind of people that they were appealing to as well yeah so it's really it's interesting stuff I'm just trying to get my, my head around it just now mm. and I'm trying to find a way to deal with it without completely destroying my reputation <laughs> which is always a, which is always a possibility yeah the older you get the less worried yeah. you are about that well that's, that's what I because mean, I've been thinking of this for a long time and yeah. I used to always when I was doing looking at Kirsten's mm. points from a PhD mm. I used to always think ley lines and there's an interesting connection there and I always I thought I can't I can't say that I, yeah. can't, I, I cannot even mention that in print or in public yeah. because I'll just be rubbished whereas I now I'm at a stage in my career where I can I, I'm quite happy to be interested in, in weird things and mm-hmm. write about them as well and be a kind of a an awkward voice I suppose but I'd much rather I, 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 it's much more interesting than just the same old stuff so yeah Actually, have you, just thinking of the Curses Monuments again, have you read that, um, it's a John North book? Yeah, I've got it, yeah, the, um, I can't know what it's called. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what it's called. It's a big, it's a big thick book. Um, His theory about um, you know, barrows, like having the ditch, and yeah. be like a viewing platform. For, yes, I have, And yeah. using the ridge of the barrow. I have got that book, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, I think in that book there's quite a, bit, a few bits about Stonehenge and Dorset Curses Monuments. Yeah. I looked at it from a PhD, but I can't remember... I can't remember much about it. Yeah. Well, I thought that was an interesting take. Just you had uh, you're looking over the the, the barrow or the the curses mm. ridge, just to see the rising yes. points of stars and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And that, and that that argument's been made about the Dorset curses by Richard Bradley. You know, in terms of the mm-hmm. um, I can't remember whether it's the midwinter sunrise or sunset that happens if you're standing in the curses and you look along the curses and there's a long barrow that's skylined and mm. then the yeah. sun would have would have been rising or setting over that. So the, these are ideas that are now. Accepted by archaeologists at that kind of level, you yeah. know, I don't think that the, the it wouldn't be. I don't think the kind of the high level astronomical measurements are accepted, but I think that those kind of ideas are are are, are quite happily accepted by archaeologists now. So it's probably actually a good time to kind of reevaluate some of these ideas that were decades ago were dismissed and laughed out of town by archaeologists, yeah. and and we come back and think about them afresh in a in a spirit of being a bit more open minded. Because archaeologists are more open-minded now than they used to be. Yeah. You know, into you know, if like Tom, Tom's work is maybe not necessarily accepted in a, in a, in all of its facets. But I think you'd find it you'd be difficult to find archaeologists now who would who would not agree that Tom did a lot of amazing work and carried out hundreds of valuable surveys of archaeological sites mm-hmm. um, and was a person who was very important 
in communicating the idea to the public that people in prehistory weren't stupid, which is ultimately what Watkins was trying to say as well. He was trying to say in prehistory people had the intellect and ability to survey in the landscape to um, create these alignments that were then remembered through both physically being used and also through oral tradition, um, and that they were essentially... And he also, Watkins is also interested in astronomical stuff as well. And there was a sense that, you know, that archaeologists had actually dismissed the intellect of people in prehistory, which is very true. When you look back in the first half of the 20th century, there was, and, you know, and, and academic publications were saying how people in prehistory lived in their own filth and how they were barbarians and savages yeah. and all that stuff. And it actually took people like Watkins and Tom, you know, to come along and, and Lockyer to come along and say, well, actually, these people were, you know, clearly they must have been intelligent, they must have had organisational capabilities, they must have understood ast- astronomy and the movement of the bodies and the, the heavens, and yeah. um, and ultimately they maybe overplayed that level of knowledge a bit, but I think that that, that was really, they played a really important role in humanising prehistoric people yeah. and stopping them being regarded as barbarians and savages, which was still a published, a published opinion in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think, I think that... that um, they're, they're really they're really important figures. These kind of marginal figures from the twentieth century who are now like Ludovic Mann as well, who exactly had exactly the same beliefs as well that people in prehistory were not stupid. Yeah. They weren't barbarians. They were civilized people who had all of these different levels of knowledge about things. And it's only in the last sort of ten fifteen years that archaeology has started to reflect on these characters and say, well, maybe we've been harsh on our view of these people because they they changed opinions and they actually did carry out. Interesting field work as well. Yeah. So what Tom Tom did, Tom did huge amounts of field work. Oh, phenomenal! Work, on yeah. sites that yeah. archaeologists weren't interested in. Yeah. You know, again, it's all you know. Oh, why, oh, what are all these megalithic? What's the point of surveying all these megalithic sites? And you know, Tom Tom's work on the, on the multiple stone rows in Caithness. No one else went near them as an archaeologist. Yeah. You know, from the surveys that um, Alexander Carroll did in 19, 19, 10, 11 for the Royal Commission inventories for Caithness and Sutherland. Between then and Roger Mercer surveying some of the stone rows in the early 1980s, archaeologists did nothing at any of those sites. But Alexander Tom had about 12 seasons of survey work in Caithness where he surveyed one or more of the stone, multiple stone rows. So it doesn't matter whether you think that what he did, how his interpretations were a bit extreme. He actually did that stuff yeah. you know, where archaeologists weren't interested because Colin Renfrew, where did he go in the 70s? He went to Orkney. He didn't go to Caithness. Yeah. He went to the Ring of Brodgar, you know. So um, Tom was going to places where other archaeologists weren't interested, you know, the West Coast and all these kind of obscure megalithic sites yeah. that no one had shown any interest in for decades. So there's got to be a huge amount of, a huge debt of gratitude to people like Tom. Um, and their reputations are now being recovered, I think, thankfully. But archaeologists have for too, for too long have just focused on the the kind of the oh, those those are fringy ideas. We don't like any of that nonsense. Yeah, and not actually focused on the the really good work that was being done. Is that because you know they didn't have the engineering background that Tom had? Couldn't understand what he was saying. Yes, that's part of it. Yeah, definitely, yeah. they couldn't understand what Tom was saying, yeah. and um, I can't understand a lot of what Tom was, Tom yeah. is saying now either. I mean, I don't really quite understand the logic behind some of it, or, or the arguments, or the science. So there's an element of that definitely. Yeah, as if archaeologists don't also have their own arcane. Knowledge well, of course, and things that other people don't know what the hell they're talking about. So it's, it's yeah. all a bit, it's a bit um, hypocritical. But yeah, I think there's an element yeah. of, there's also an element I think of, you know, uh, well, he's an engineer. What does he know about archaeology? You know, yeah. you know, or man, you know, man was an investment broker or um, yeah. an insurance broker. You know, what does he know about archaeology? 
Um, Harry Bell was—I don't know what Harry Bell did in his day life, day, day job. He wasn't an archaeologist, um, and, and and so on. So you've got there's and a, Watkins was a photographer. Yes, and Watkins was a photographer. Yeah. So again, it's a it's an establishment thing as well. It's about yeah. these, these are outsiders. They don't act. They you know they don't actually really have the knowledge that we have, and the, these are all the reasons why they're wrong, or do we don't even have to. We, it's so obvious they're wrong. We don't even have to engage with it. Yeah. So I think there's a there's a disciplinary thing about that as well. Again, about archaeologists being dismissive of people who, who aren't archaeologists having a say about the past. And that's not to say that archaeologists don't have a really important role to say things about the past, because of course we do. Um, but I think we're a bit, sometimes we're, are too quick to dismiss other opinions because they don't come from someone who's got an archaeological background or training. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's all part of the way archaeology has been developing in recent years, you know, with new technology coming in and new uh, surveying equipment. Hmm. That seems to have gone hand in hand with the sort of openness to new ways of looking at things. Yes. Yeah, I think that the I think that archaeology as a discipline is is changing all the time, and it's much more. I think there's a, there's a there's, the technology is opened up to more people. Um, bizarrely, even though it, you could you could imagine that would be more, it would kind of rest, it would separate people off from the the, the discipline. It actually opens up people to use technology that everyone has, you know, on smartphones and things like that. You know, for mm. instance, doing photogrammetry. Um, it, it's it, arch, but archaeology more broadly as a discipline is much more open. Um, so public archaeology and engaging with communities and the public is, is massive now in the subject. Um, you know, community excavations are really common and working with members of the public. And uh, that, the idea of 20, when 20 years ago, people, excavations were still about finding stuff out about the, about the past and then reporting on it in various different kind of inaccessible ways. But that, that's, not, that's not acceptable anymore. You know, archaeologists now... If you want to do something, you have to have a better reason than just to say something about the past, yeah. for the most part. And so people disseminate results more through the internet and through social media. Um, more stuff's available, apart from these journals that are still locked off, that are not open access. Most stuff's more accessible now. More people can participate than ever before as well through digital technologies and so on. So it's, it's definitely changing, and part of that change is engaging with different communities that in the past we would just have dismissed as... Is not having not been relevant or not been worth talking to. Yeah. So I think it's that it's all all these changes are for the better. You know that and actually that's the perfect response to Renfrew's challenge that he made in the, in the nineties about you know you know you you know prove ley lines are wrong. You know and actually that's just that challenge is just wrong headed because it's not about proving ley lines are wrong. It's about talking to people who who are, who who are interested in leys who believe in them who work with them. Who know what they're talking about and are experts in that in that particular field, and learning learning from each other. Mm-hmm. And um, because you know what, you, what you, why would you say to a lay, a lay hunter you disprove archaeologists? You know, it's just like, it's, yeah. it's, it's ludicrous, yeah. really. So, so I think that actually Renfrew, when he said that, he was already um, a bit of a dinosaur. Hopefully, he won't listen to your podcast. But you know, but, <laughs> um, he's a giant of the discipline, of course. But you we know, can edit that out if you yeah, want. It's not, it's not, yeah, it's not, no, um, it's okay. He always thinks I'm someone else whenever I meet him. Anyway, he thinks I'm Duncan. He thinks I'm Duncan Garrow, who is who's based at um, Southampton. Uh, so, I think that he, he was. I think that um, actually that was a, the last fling of that kind of protectionist element of archaeology. And ultimately, those young academics who are coming through at the time, who are who are for a different theoretical standpoint, um, changed the way that changed the way that the discipline approached the outside world. Um, and it was no longer like a kind of a, 
an old an old boys history um, kind of history club. It was much more about an open discipline, mm. and also you know if it, if it isn't now, then it will be shut down because the, you can't do you can't do things now that involve public money um, and the time and energy without transparency, without social thinking about social benefit and thinking about how um, people can be informed of what's going on. Mm. So if, if archaeologists want to continue to exist as a discipline then we need to talk to people and we need to engage and we need to open up and be transparent. Well, as, as you've very clearly been doing with the Cockno Stone and going around yeah. the schools and you know, drawing all your cup of ring marks on yeah. in chalk and stuff. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's what, that has, that's what has to happen. Because, yeah. um, well, I mean, archaeologists shut down the Cockno Stone mm. um, without telling anyone, consulting with anyone, uh, and took it away from the people of the local community. Yeah. And if I'd, been, if I'd been doing this field work in the 70s, I would have come in, I would have taken off the top of the the top of the all the soil off the stone I would have done all the recording that I could do and then I would have gone away and I would have published it in the Proceedings of the Society of Antiviews of Scotland and maybe done a, a done a lecture to the Glasgow Archaeology Society and then I would have that would have I would have moved on it wouldn't, wouldn't have crossed my mind that maybe local people would have been that interested in what was going on yeah or to talk to them about anything yeah um, I would have been probably furious about the graffiti on the stone and how all oh, these people can't be trusted and so it was a completely different discipline back then, mm. you know, and that that that's at the time when, you know, when Tom was at work, and so you can see that how the the, the environment was just completely wrong for people with other ideas and people with different approaches. Yeah. Um, whereas you know, if if Watkins had been emerging now, it would have been a it would have probably ended up working with working with archaeologists and. There would have been probably joint publications, and there would have been kind of different way. It would have been, it would have been speaking to archaeology societies and having different kinds of receptions. Um, whereas he had the misfortune of emerging at a time when archaeology was a real old boys club and a real closed shop. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, that 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 environment set up the kind of the schism which kind of has existed to this day, really, in different various different guises. Yeah. Well, it's great that things are changing, and you know, and uh, the spirit of openness is developing. And yeah. it's, I really enjoy this sort of cross-disciplinary discussions. Mm. Um, so, on that note, Kenny, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks yeah, and you much. as well. Thanks, Liam. Thank you. Well, sadly, we had to wrap things up there as Kenny had to go back to work, but not before he borrowed a few books from my library. I'm certain that we'll be having many more such chats in the future, and you can be sure that I'll be doing my best to record them for you. But I'm afraid that's it for this episode. So if you have any comments about the show that you would like to share, you can send an email to podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com or you can leave comments on particular episodes on the website adventuresanddowsing.com. I'll put links to Kenny's Urban Prehistorian blog there as well, so you can get in touch with him directly if you like. If you enjoy the podcast, please do take a moment or two to give us a good review on iTunes or whatever site you've downloaded it from. It really does help with the search rankings. So thanks to you for listening. Many thanks, as always, to Hilary Brooks, Not For Pussies, and Ian Pegler for the music. And be sure to join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing. <laughs>